Hello and welcome to Piece by Piece, the podcast where we piece together what makes a world without violence. While we don't always see it, gender-based violence is all around us. At ANOVA, we believe in a future without violence. But what does a future without violence look like? And how do we get there? My name is Dr. Annalise Trudell, and I'm your host. This week's episode, Homelessness is a Gendered Issue. Today we're talking homelessness with housing stability and health equity researcher and professor at Western, Abe Udshorn. We start by defining what homelessness is, what causes it, and explain how it is in fact gendered. Abe provides us with some insight on how women and non-binary individuals are driven into homelessness for a whole variety of reasons, including gender-based violence, and how they experience homelessness differently and exit it differently. We talk about strategies to end homelessness and what you can do to support those. And they're probably a little different than you think, so give a listen. Welcome, Abe. Good to have you here. Good to be here. Yeah. So um, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, sort of beyond your bio, perhaps, or connected to your bio, why this work is important to you? Sure. So at heart, I'm a nurse, and that is kind of the essence that drives me to try to, to create change, to make a healthier, ultimately, world and a, a more equitable world. And so my background is at working at London Inter Community Health Center, where I had the real privileged opportunity to work with folks who had various challenges uh, that they're facing around poverty, low income, being newcomers to Canada, uh, as well as people experiencing homelessness. And that work as a nurse was just such an uh, incredible privilege and incredible challenge. And, you know, you hear stories day after day after day of people's uh, struggles, of it's the systems that kind of tear people down um, of just the complex needs and, and issues. And uh, I loved getting to know people at that level. I loved the opportunity to immerse myself in, in their lives and for little bits of time. But I also was just deeply, deeply dismayed by the system. And, and that fact that as a nurse, I was literally putting band-aids on much, much bigger problems. Right. And so that has, has never left me. And that's what drives my passion around ending homelessness is because it, it, the people that I got to know um, have, have really, you know, motivated and challenged me to create better system structures, policies, programs. Um, at the same time, uh, another key aspect is that I've been made uh, incredibly aware of my obscene privilege. Uh, I'm white, mm -hmm. middle-class male from urban Ontario, well-educated, and so I've had a lot of wonderful mentors along the way, both people with lived and living experiences of homelessness and people who work in the sector hmm. who've constantly challenged and, and reminded me about my privilege and have 
made it clear to me that experiences of homelessness, because they are structural, are not the same. And so different people experience the system in different ways, whether that's due to gender, racialization, uh, citizenship, age, sexuality. And so lots of particularly wonderful mentors, and I'll name people like Shelley Yo and Susan McPhail, uh, have helped me understand uh, women's, uh, both cis and trans experiences of homelessness. And to kind of make sure that the work that I do isn't just kind of reifying micro privileges uh, and that instead, I'd be kind of laser focused in my work on, on those who have particular challenges in their experiences of homelessness. So, and then of course, as I think drives many of us, there's personal uh, motivators as well. So I had a, a brother who experienced homelessness as a teenager. And mm. so all these things, I guess, in, in different ways, um, bring me to this work, keep me grounded in the work and passionate about the work. Uh, hopefully keep me honest in the work um, and uh, and keep me, I guess, uh, a little bit hopeful that we, we can create a better world here. I love that there's sort of a weaving of personal and professional and your own personal growth uh, all to that answer. So thank you. You have started to sort of lay out the groundwork for us, but I'm going to kind of deep dive into it. Um, we're talking about homelessness and in particular, we're talking about gendered homelessness, but let's just start with a primer on what is sort of homelessness? How do we define that and what's going on in Canada as it relates to homelessness? Mm -hmm. So when we think about homelessness, the, you know, obvious situations that come to mind are those who are absolutely homeless. So they have no shelter, no accommodation. Um, and that is obviously a growing concern. Uh, we've seen through the pandemic that that particular situation has increased. But there's also other forms. And so there are folks who are emergency sheltered, whether that's at uh, general shelters or at violence against women shelters. Then there are folks in all sorts of kind of more hidden forms of homelessness. And that can be things like couch surfing, uh, that can be trading sex for a place to stay, that can be in uh, spaces that are not meant for human habitation that people are, are staying in temporarily. Uh, and so homelessness is kind of multifaceted in terms of that actual experience, as are kind of the causes of homelessness. And so we know that <clears throat> the biggest cause is some kind of disruption. And so to me and, and thinking about the stories that folks have shared with me, it, it is so often that series of unfortunate events um, in the context of some kind of social vulnerability. So, you know, if you're a family already living on the edge and there's a, a breakdown in a marriage or violence in a relationship, um, if you're newcomers to the country and uh, someone uh, experiences a mental health challenge, uh, if you have a sudden loss of work uh, and have to relocate uh, in, within the country, uh, these are, are the types of, of situations that people can face unexpectedly. Um, 
Now, I mentioned that it's it's usually in the context of other vulnerabilities, and that's where kind of this intersectional understanding of, of how our society uh, creates privilege and disadvantage uh, that helps us understand, well, you know, if it's if it's just about poverty, well, then why does the face of homelessness not look like the general face of the population? Why are Indigenous people so overrepresented? Why are LGBTQ2S youth so overrepresented? Um, and that's where you get into kind of the, the intersectional nature where colonization and, and racism and sexism and all of these things also un underlie the, the issue her becoming homeless or I think of my kid who's having a tough go you know it, it could happen to them <clears throat> on the other hand well yes it could happen to anyone it doesn't happen to everyone the same way uh, and the common conversation around causes of homelessness a lot of it's around the idea of mental illness and addiction so are these kind of the root causes and important to note that actually the vast majority of people who experience a mental health challenge and the vast majority of people who live with addiction don't become homeless, right? So yes, it could happen to anyone, but it doesn't happen to everyone in the same way and to the same rate. So on that note, how does it play out in terms of gender? So if we zero in on gender, both as sort of how it's experienced by women or non-binary and trans folk, but also, um, you know, what causes it for those populations? Is it a different sort of swirl of events or situations? I'm just going to pause right here because my kid has called three times now. Oh, no, oh, no. And I'm just going to quickly call him back if that's okay. But I remember yeah. the question and I'll pick it up right there. Yeah, please. So speaking of sort of how it's experienced differently, let's talk about gender for a second. Um, you know, there's probably, you could probably highlight all kinds of different causes of homelessness for women, trans and non-binary folk, but also I'm thinking that it's really experienced differently when you're in the situation of homelessness as that kind of person. Can you dive into gender? Yeah, so there is several aspects around gender and it's it's both the pathways into homelessness and it's the experience within and it's the way that people uh, are able to exit homelessness and so again we have to to look like really high level to understand this and and this is the, the stuff you know far better than i do around just the gendered nature of our societies and so when we look at things like uh, family poverty uh, and we look at uh, folks who end up accessing shelter, the vast majority of single parent families accessing shelter services are, are led by mom. And so it like 97, 98%, like an overwhelming Damn. majority. And so that, I mean, takes us that's that's the entrance into the experience so of course it points us to the gendered nature of society of of family care of poverty um and so there are unique vulnerabilities and of course we also know that family violence uh is predominantly um male on female violence and so again people accessing shelter because they're exiting a domestic violence situation are, are overwhelmingly female. 
Um, I already mentioned a little bit about the overrepresentation of LGBTQ2S youth in shelters. Uh, and again, we see this because of uh, all sorts of layered oppressions and prejudices that, that people who are trans uh, or transitioning are uh, also vastly overrepresented. So that could be because of a lack of family support, that could be because of experiences in their workplace, in their school, um, that are, are kind of that series of unfortunate events. So it's pulling out those threads that are, are supporting people. So there's, there's that gendered kind of nature that, that pushes people into the experience disproportionately. Uh, but then in encountering homelessness, <clears throat> it, it's, uh, it, it's a very difficult situation for many reasons, but one of those is for safety. And so we see that uh, women, cis and trans, tend to avoid shelters as much as possible, um, and, unless kind of a real last ditch uh, effort, or if they're in a partnered relationship where they feel a little bit more comfortable, and if that's even allowed within the shelter. Um, and so we'll more often kind of make things work in more hidden ways. So I mentioned, you know, couch surfing or, or staying in, in kind of a non-habitable location. Um, <clears throat> but there's so much risk for anyone. I mean, anyone experiencing homelessness is vulnerable to um, abuses, to manipulation, to people taking advantage of, of that precarity of the situation. Uh, and that's just layered uh, when when you add as well gender in in to the mix. Um, so we see this huge, unfortunately, kind of trauma history as people's journey into homelessness, and then this potential for rapid escalation of traumas in the experience. Uh, and this is part of why there's such a focus these days on <clears throat> rapid rehousing because, the experience of homelessness itself uh, can be very, um, very traumatic, very difficult, and can compound and can make it harder to then exit. And so a really good example of this is with youth, where the vast majority of youth who enter into homelessness have not used hard substances in their lives. They may have used marijuana or alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, but within six months of being street involved, the overwhelming majority of youth have used a hard substance. So it's the precarity that comes up through homelessness that then has the risk of, of getting people stuck there. And then finally, there's the paths out. And so again, because poverty is very gendered, then, you know, if people are trying to get a lease, there's gender discrimination in leasing. And of course, no one's gonna admit it. No landlord's gonna say, you know, I, I would rather take a man than a woman as a tenant. Uh, but there is just a general distrust that women will have gainful employment over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And so we see landlords prefer, uh, preferring um, employed men over even employed women. Uh, in leases. So gender <laughs> creates precarity, gender makes uh, experiences of homelessness dangerous, 
and gender can prevent people having the same opportunity for ex-homelessness. So many things are swirling in my mind as you've walked through those three parts of it. Um, so, you know, the woman who is experiencing domestic violence sort of may not leave that situation and for fear of entering into a place of homelessness. Or if she does, that might also cause her to enter into a place of homelessness. So that's a, you know, no win there. Um, mm. And then when I think about the queer and trans community, we were just actually uh, speaking with another expert and they were sort of highlighting because um, of sort of heteronormativity and sort of oppression writ large in, in society. And that's a bold, big statement, but just all of what's going on, what happens for that community is that they rely on a more sort of subset, small community and the fear of losing that community um, by, you know, calling out someone who's harming you within it um, will lead to other kinds of precarity. Like say you have to leave that community. You're, you have less friends to rely on for couch surfing. You're more likely to have that experience of homelessness because you have less resources and other like social resources and other ways. And all these sort of more story-based examples are coming to my mind as you've walked us through again, it was really helpful. Like gender is plays out in terms of what leads to homelessness. Gender plays out in how it's lived and gender plays out on the exit end of it. Mm -hmm. You mentioned rapid housing. Mm -hmm. uh, you also mentioned some of the challenges for women in getting leases and sort of the bias therein. Um, can you dive a little bit more on the exit end of this, like perhaps solution-based, but just, yeah, like what do we do on the exiting of homelessness? How do we solve that part? Yeah, no, that's a good question. <clears throat> and the other aspect I should really mention around the gender nature of exits is that, you know, the, there the challenge with women in being in less visible uh, experiences is that it's also then less likely the system supports are going to be connected to them. Uh, and so a really good example of that is that uh, a lot of the focus right now is ensuring that those who have the highest needs receive the highest supports. And so one of the simple metrics to decide who gets kind of individualized support into housing is how long you've been in an emergency shelter. And so if you've been in six months plus in shelter, you're considered chronically homeless and more likely to qualify for like permanent uh, ongoing support. And now, of course, Sorry. if women Permanent are ongoing support means like financial support from the government to housing, it, it can be a couple or... things. Yeah, good question. So that could be like a rent supplement. Okay. Uh, or it could be a housing stability worker uh, who will then kind of work with someone to get them housed, check in with them uh, as as they go along. <clears throat> now, again, if <clears throat> women are avoiding shelter, then they're not going to you know, check that box if it's metric based in understanding who gets the support. And so almost in a way penalized by, by kind of solving things themselves to an extent and then making it harder for them to get the additional support that they might otherwise qualify for. <clears throat> so in terms of exits from homelessness, one of the particularities is that ideally, as much as possible, people are able to connect through to natural supports. Uh, and that can be their own resources. 
Um, so, you know, if people can get their own lease, can find their own employment, those sorts of things. I mean, that's of course, best case scenario. Um, but that could be network resources. So that could be extended family, um, that could be friends, that could be whatever supports um, people can find, especially with the housing market that is so, so terrible. If you can find someone that'll rent a, a basement apartment to you, um, you know, that's ideal. But of course, when we think about reconnect, it's those relationship breakdowns, um, and particularly in the context of domestic violence, that is such the problem, because of course, we don't want to be pushing people uh, back into a situation they don't want to be in. Uh, and so in, in that case, and especially if there's been things like financial abuse over time, um, the woman may not have uh, a credit history. They may not have a rental history. Everything may have been in his name. Um, and that can just be that extra layer then that makes it harder to, to get out. And so you see things like second stage housing being used uh, within the, the VAW sector where it's, um, you know, supported by an organization for, for someone to get into a transitional housing and start building up that, that history. You just mentioned a few things I want to pause on because I think for folks who are new to the topic of homelessness um, and sort of the gender-based violence connection of it, like who, who sit frankly in a lot of privilege. So where I would be coming from as well. So what are some of those barriers? Like if you don't have a rent history, everybody needs to provide um, some sort of reference in that capacity. You need to have a credit score in some way to be able to, or employment that you can show proof of that to get just your apartment. And you mm -hmm. can't go off to work unless you have an apartment and a stable address in a lot of contexts. Um, and the other one that you had mentioned, oh, and it slipped my mind. Anyways, you had named some really tangible ones that like, I think a lot of the time we don't think of as being barriers to um, holding down a home. Um, mm. from a privileged standpoint, I think that that was sort of grounding and important. Yeah. So. Yeah. And the other thing, you know, I, I already mentioned, uh, you know, child uh, caregiving and, and we have to, to talk about that uh, because <clears throat> for women who have children, and this again goes right to the beginning of the experience, the maintaining care of their kids is priority one, two, three, and four. <laughs> and so that can also be why people might avoid more kind of mainstream systems is out of fear that they will be identified as homeless and in custody of a child and that the children's aid services will be involved and that they'll ultimately lose that custody. <clears throat> and so this is another reason why rapid rehousing can be so important um, is to either maintain or regain custody of, of children. Um, but absolutely, I mean, mm -hmm. in terms of getting that lease, uh, it's, I mean, I think fortunately through the last federal election, the housing issue has become very top of mind. And I think we're all mm -hmm. much more aware of what's going on. But if you're a landlord right now, and you have a reasonable unit at a reasonable price, you're looking at 40, 50, 60 applications for that unit wow. when you list it. 
And so in that situation, landlords are, are skimming, right? It's like employed, unemployed, employed, unemployed, you know, kids, no kids and, 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 you know, women, men, and they're, they're able to, um, screen on any way that they want, uh, mm-hmm. which of course, for a single woman with a child who is, has maybe a period of, of six, eight, 10 months where she, her housing history is, there's no housing history, um, you know, to the bottom of the pile. And, right. and it's such a tough market for renters right now. Um, now on the flip side though, the landlords are many are they listen to the organizations and so if an organization does come forward and say look this person's been living at our our second stage housing for you know x number of months or even years they're an incredibly good tenant and we're helping them in this way and they're very independent blah blah you know that that does definitely increase people's opportunities and, and, and people's chances um, but that's where things like rent supplements, which I mentioned before, also can really help because then there's at least a guarantee of payment to the landlord, which for some landlords is really all they, all they care matters, about. Yeah. Am I getting, getting my rent? So That number is staggering. Yeah. 50 or 60, I think is what you said. Yeah. Um, and the other one, it, what I had forgot earlier was maybe just using London. If you have the national set, that'd be great. But um like what are rent prices right now for those of us who are disconnected from that? Oh, it's, it's gone absolutely through the roof. So we, we we're breaking a thousand um, now for a one bedroom. Uh, so, you know, two bedrooms going for, um, you know, 1800, 17, 1800. Uh, it's, it's the increase has been astronomical uh, and, you know, without, good rent controls and even even in rent control there's so many workarounds that landlords use um in in you know moving someone they know in for for a year and then you know putting it back on the market for twice the price um we're seeing bachelor units which there aren't very many of to be honest in in london they're not built here very often um into the seven eight hundred dollars and so you're you're so far removed now from like an Ontario works, a social assistance rate. Mm-hmm, uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's just, yeah, it's just a, a terrible market. Yeah. So to that point, like if you're on social assistance, you cannot afford that. Um, yeah. I mean, people are primarily wage. into rooming situations at that point. Yeah. Right. And so that's the only way, cause you can maybe get a room, you know, for 400 that you're then sharing with maybe five, six other people sharing kitchen, sharing bathrooms, uh, and again, obviously not appropriate for women with children, um, but also yeah. a vulnerable situation for any woman and vulnerable with the landlord, because that's the other story that we hear are landlords who who prey on their tenants in, in all sorts of different ways. I just have that story sort of in my mind of, yeah, a, a single mom who is trying to get a part time job, but can't afford childcare on that part time job. And is unable to afford a two-bedroom apartment, which is needed to support a kiddo. Yeah. Um, oh. Yeah. And when we say that, like, when I say we create poverty, it's not like a high theoretical 
thing. <laughs> I mean, right? Yeah, we we create poverty. We've we've decided that social assistance rates <clears throat> are are at, at what they're at, and they are not sufficient to pay for food and shelter. And so, in that context, people have to do many many other things to survive you know, going, running around to, to different soup kitchens and food banks and trying to get rent supplements and trying to get housing support and getting on wait lists for social housing that are, you know, many, many years long. And that's something, that's a decision we made. We could provide people more sufficient social assistance um, so that they, they could get by, but, but we've chosen not to as a society. Hmm. It reminds me, we had had a conversation on this podcast a while ago, but that was someone who's a survivor is one step removed from you, if not directly you. And I think a lot of us sit in this place of, we don't know anyone who's homeless perceived at least. Um, And so we're just, it's not forefront in our minds. We're not investing the dollars in it, but the reality of exactly, we've created all the situations to both drive people into it and not allow any exit um, from that, and especially for certain people, uh, particularly. Um, well, yeah, the narratives that we've talked about, but sort of mums um, or the yeah. LGBTQIA community or the rest, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's heavy. What kind of solutions do you have for us, Abe? Yeah, so, I mean, there are many solutions and uh, it's it's not a kind of one size fits all. Uh, you know, we have had, success and and you know from 2016 to 2019 in London I was telling a success story we were solving homelessness in this community and that was largely through these kind of focus programs uh, using a, a model called housing first where you know the the right supports are given to people that go with that person to their new home, um, rent supplements, stability workers, workers to help them find the home, uh, things like head leases where the government is, is directly leasing the apartment from the landlord and then they get to choose who the tenant is. Um, so these systems were working and at the time we were starting from a pretty good vacancy rate four plus percent vacancy rate uh, in London, which, you know, cities like Toronto and Vancouver would be very jealous of at that time. And so it was working. We were maximizing already existing space within our communities to get people out of shelters, get them housed. Um, And like I said, that was a success story. We were, we were solving the problem. Now, unfortunately, that ran out <laughs> and we ran out of that capacity and so the problem one of the problems is, is is just housing supply and so we filled up the vacancies uh, and then new housing that was affordable was not coming online at a sufficient pace so there's a definite you know build more affordable housing, build more social housing element, because you can have all the cool programs and in-home supports you want, but if you've got no homes to put people in, then right. you, you get nowhere. So we kind of ran into that wall just before the pandemic hit. Uh, and then the pandemic hit and definitely complicated 
things in in many ways uh, on top of that. Um, one of the things that unfortunately did is that it put a lot of equity into the pockets of potential investors. And so a good example of this is that Canadians used to spend $40 billion a year on travel. That was generally a, 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 not all Canadians, right? right so right. The, the, these are folks who have a lot of money, you know, middle and upper class people who then had $40 billion of extra capital. And they dumped that in a huge way into land, cottages, and housing. Uh, and we're in a situation now where large cities like Toronto see something like 25% of their real estate sales are going to investors. And so, what was it before? Like, what's our benchmark? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I'd have to look that up. Sorry, uh, I put you on the spot, but no, no, like, that seems really high. Spot, but 25% <laughs> is, is very high. That means, you know, one in four apartments that are condos that sell in Toronto as someone who already has a place to live and they're now buying this as a as an investment. So we run into a situation where people are buying up housing as a, an investment that prices then skyrocket on that. Um, and then as as these wealthy investors are outbidding each other, then they have to make the rent higher to you know get the money back that they just spent. So we have rents, you know, skyrocket up. We have our supply runs out. Um, and so then we start to get this backlog where there isn't flow for people back into to home. So solutions are we have to build more housing. It's just, and, and bottom to the top of the market, like any, <laughs> we have to build more purpose-built rental housing. We have to build more home ownership so that we can get people out of the rental who mm. don't need to be in rental to free that up for people who do need it. Um, we need uh, social housing that is ranked geared to income. Uh, we need housing of all kinds. Uh, we also need sufficient supports to then go with people to housing. Uh, and so the City of London released uh, recently um, as part of the Community Foundation report, their number of people uh, on their list of people experiencing homelessness is 1,300 people. So that's a big number. And a proportion of that number will not be able to directly move into housing on their own. They will need support to make that happen. Um, and so that support is it's pretty high support. And so a housing stability worker might only work with 10, 15, maximum 20 people. Um, so if even 10% of the 1300 need support workers, we're talking, you know, dozens more housing stability workers we need in the system that that's cash. So it's two things, it's housing supply, and then it's support to make that housing work for the people who need the most assistance. So investment from the government, multi-level government. <laughs> yeah, well, um, exactly. And we can play around the edges, right, of, of models and, and those sorts of things. But 
this really does come down to some some straight up hard cash um, yeah because it costs money to build and it costs money to to fund workers um mm-hmm. you know we've seen that story pretty clear within uh london middlesex community housing where they've been straight up and said you know we've got i forget what it is something like six community workers for 30 sites and it's just not enough and if you want us to be you know, the primary um, landlord for people exiting shelter, then we need more money for more staff. And, right. and so, yeah, the, it, 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 at some point it does come down to government investment. What's striking me here is that there's so many connections, like the being priced out of first-time home buyership ownership is sort of the trickle-down effect then onto the rent market. Um, and there's lots of sort of media coverage of that. And, and it just keeps, the divide keeps going in the divide of the pandemic where mid-upper class folk actually earn some savings. And, you know, women's employment rates have yet to recover. Right. So we have more women who are struggling to maintain or get into the job market again, which will bear in on their experience of homelessness as well. And their experience of gender-based violence, either staying in or experiencing it through their homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just like, yeah, it's just a web. It's just a web of how this all interconnects. Yeah. And it's interesting that there was this narrative about like, you know, we'll create something better. I think the the tagline in the U.S. Biden's was like build back better. Um, and it's, it's this idea that, you know, maybe coming out of this, we'll learn lessons and, and we'll create a better something in the future fundamentally missing that something has already happened (laughs) in the past year and a half. So while we were not paying attention and we're maybe somewhere looking to what we do in the future, as you said, absolutely, we've just accelerated inequities, right? So we've accelerated the divide in the labor market for women. We've accelerated uh, the divide between home ownership and renting. We've accelerated homelessness. And so well, we've been saying, you know, let's down the line, we'll make something better. It's like, hold on, right now things are getting worse. <laughs> so mm-hmm. forget building back better. Can we please stop <laughs> making things worse? Yeah. I know for most of our listeners, um, other than the moment where they vote, or if they're really active citizens and want to write to their government, sort of the recommendation of more government funding might feel inaccessible. Do you have any sort of advocacy things that individuals or workplaces can take on that might contribute or help prevent that gendered homelessness? So I would say that actually our municipal council has been a wonderful partner in the housing issue. And so they have put um, uh, investments like we've never seen uh, into housing, which is, is really interesting because this council is, is really spreads the political spectrum, um, and are not, you know, high spenders generally, uh, but they have prioritized housing investment. Um, so absolutely just writing to your counselor and thanking them for what they've done so far in housing and encouraging them to keep that as a priority. There was a recently just a, a report that we had some extra unspent municipal funds because of the pandemic and some things that are closed, and they've put that into the housing reserve fund. And so, I, just an indication that this council is prioritizing housing. So, 
a, a letter of thanks and encouragement to your municipal counselor to keep on that uh, pathway. Um, but in terms of <clears throat> the investment side, this is really, I think, where having a new federal government, <laughs> new reiteration Ish. of the previous <laughs> <clears throat> is a chance though, because there's going to be a new cabinet. Uh, there's going to be new priorities set. Um, this is a time to talk investment. And so the federal government is the one who runs our national housing strategy, which flows through the bulk of the funding uh, for things like housing first programs. Uh, and so if you've got an MP uh, in, in your area who is a returning MP or is new, um, writing them and letting them know that, you know, housing affordability was an issue for this election for a reason. It's top of mind. And if they can continue to think of the most vulnerable people. And so what I'm afraid of is that the housing conversation becomes this middle-class conversation. Uh, and then we start to see ourselves repeating the same mistakes, like just building more sprawl of single family, you know, expensive homes. <clears throat> and that we miss the fact that, well, there we are all concerned about housing, some of us carry a bigger burden here. So right. absolutely writing your, your federal member of parliament and, and, and looking for more investment in, in actual uh, affordable housing, social housing and, and homelessness supports would be a, a huge benefit if folks want, want to be political on this. Um, to be perfectly honest, I wouldn't waste time with our provincial government. <clears throat> they are... Uh, they've already taken $240 million a year out of our housing budget provincially. They're not looking for new investments. Um, so sure. yeah, I would focus on the federal and the municipal. <laughs> so folks get your letter writing, email writing going, uh, sort of advocate on a system level. I know in my mind, the one thing on an individual level too, that I would just sort of, you had talked about it in your intro, but just the humanizing of the experience of homelessness, mm -hmm. not in the sense of like it could happen to any of us, but in the sense of not othering it either um, and sort of connecting to it in some capacity. And mm -hmm. there's lots of good spaces locally that could use some donated dollars. So if that's also where your, your heart speaks through your wallet, um, yeah. not a long-term strategy by any sense, but somewhere to also sort of place some focus if that helps. Yeah. But a very simple way to help out. And I know, for example, here in London, uh, ANOVA often posts their um, their needs. And that's a really simple way to say, hey, look, they've asked for these toiletries. I can just drop that off at, at the Wellington site. And um, yeah, that's a really quick and, and hands-on way that, that you can help out too. Thanks for that plug. Appreciate it. <laughs> um, well, in wrapping up, I'm wondering what are three things that you would want our listeners to take away from our conversation today? We've sort of went pretty meta. We wove in a few story sort of moments to ground it a little bit, I think. But what would you want them to leave with? Yeah, so first thing I would say is that <clears throat> because homelessness is a system issue, then the same prejudices and inequities that exist within our, our system 
also play into homelessness. And so um, women, cis and trans are uniquely vulnerable to experiencing homelessness and in their experiences of homelessness and in trying to find exits. So absolutely, if folks can keep that gendered lens in mind when they think about the issue of homelessness. <clears throat> Secondly, I would say that homelessness is still a solvable problem, even though we've gone backwards for a couple of years here. Um, the solutions are there and you just have to look at countries like Austria and Finland and Denmark to see that other people um, with the right investments uh, and the right motivation uh, can solve homelessness. Uh, and lastly, I would say that at the heart of, of what we can be as humans is that we can continue to care uh, and never lose the sense that someone who's homeless is a neighbor, is friend, is family. Uh, they're a member of our community. They belong here just like anyone else. Uh, we don't want to get rid of them. We want to have the supports that they need to, to be well. Um, so just to keep that, that sense that, uh, that folks who are struggling are, are just like you and I, we're, we're all human. What a perfect note to leave that on. Thank you, Ed, for today. It was a great conversation. Thanks for having me on. Piece by Piece is a production of ANOVA, A Future Without Violence. ANOVA is on social media, and you can learn more about Piece by Piece and ANOVA at www.anovafuture.org. A reminder that if you need to talk, please call our 24-hour crisis and support line at 1-800-265-1576. Our sexual assault counselors are available for virtual appointments, and our shelters are open. We're here for you. A special thank you to Najee Naim Zada for technical production, Emma Richard for visual content creation. And music for this podcast is from the album Sweet and Joyful by Crowander, the track Humming. Music access downloaded and used under Creative Commons license via freemusicarchive.org. See you next time.